Good morning, Family Church. For the past many weeks, we've been working through Ephesians. We've seen husbands' roles. We've seen the wives' roles. We've seen how your marriage relates to the church and the bride of Christ and what that means to be in the church. And this morning, we're moving into Ephesians chapter 6. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. And it says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And our focus this morning is not to zoom in on the children yet, but to see that first word, children. And so we've seen husbands, we've seen wives, and now we've seen children. And I want us to zoom out, rather than focusing on children, zoom out and to actually see what we've been given is a picture of the family. Husbands, wives, children, or child. And this is the same biblical picture that we've always been given in the scriptures of what a family actually is. And so that is the discussion of this morning's sermon, is the family unit. Would you pray with me as we begin? God, we pray that you may change us, mold us. God, we'll be going over a lot of scriptures this morning and a lot of things that are just very practical to our families. I pray that we may not just hear these things and leave, but that we may hear them. They may convict us, change us, encourage us. And ultimately change how we live in our families. How we grandparent. How we are around those who do have families. I pray for the teenagers who are here. Or college students or children. That they may begin learning what it means to be a family. And how to function in a family biblically. As that is a concept so neglected in our culture. God, we thank you for who you are and that we have the scriptures to open this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And that is my prayer is that for most of us, we never really learned how to be a family. We just had a child and then became a family. And no one ever really taught us how to parent. And when I was a a kid, I never really learned what to do or what not to do, I just really pick up things from my parents. And that's a lot of times how we actually act as a family, is how our families acted that we were from. But from the beginning, we see all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, and we'll be turning there, so you can go ahead and be turning to Genesis chapter 3, we see the biblical picture of a family. Adam, Eve, God told them to go and have children. They were a biblical definition of a family. But it's important for us to understand that God is the one that defines everything. He defines what a family is. He defines what love is. He created it so he can define it. That's unless, of course, he gives us the responsibility to define something as he did with Adam. He created the animals and he stepped back and he said, Adam, you can define these things. So Adam got to name the animals. Well, Adam didn't try to redefine if he was a male or not which is happening in our culture. He didn't try to redefine if he was actually going to be married to Eve or not, which is actually happening in our culture. He didn't try to redefine some fundamental things that God had already defined. They did, however, get in trouble whenever they tried to redefine some things that God had said, and it was very subtle. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Now the serpent 
was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, and this is a question that's going to be throughout the sermon that's in our culture today, did God actually say, trying to redefine what God has already defined, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of it, ate it, and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. They knew that they had sin. Sin entered into the world when Adam and Eve decided to redefine what God had already defined. Satan said, did God really say? And then they tested it, and sin entered into the world. And our culture is no different. Biblically speaking, we see from the genealogies in the Bible, we can trace from Jesus Christ all the way back to Adam, and the genealogies there given the 2,000 years, are about 6,000 years. That's under attack today, but we have genealogies. If we believe the Bible, there's actually dates that go back. And so we shouldn't expect our culture to be any different because for 6,000 years, we've operated the same way. Continually asking, did God really say, fill in the blank? Did God really say this is the way it should be done or that defines that thing? Did he really mean it that way? And it's the same lies being told. An example of this is this past week, Jamie, Pastor Terry's wife, checked out some library books for her children. And this was one of the books that she checked out. It's called Monday is One Day, a colorful book and a lot of pictures. And she was reading through this book. And this is a great example. Monday is One Day. Then you go in. First page, the hardest part of going to work is being apart from you. Second page, into the book. On the left-hand side, there's a traditional family, stereotypical family. It has a farmer in a plaid shirt, overalls, a John Deere hat. You later see him on a tractor later. He's kind of like rural America Republican in the book here. And it says, let's count the days till we're both at home with a special thing to do. The wife is serving them breakfast. He's reading the newspaper. It's like as stereotypical as you could be. The next page has two men beside a child they're tucking in bed in a homosexual relationship. And at the end of the book, it's a great example. It says, this delightful book, this on the back, reminds us that even though the definition of family is constantly changing, the definition of love stays the same. So, who has gone and defined or redefined what a family is? Well, this author, and now teaching children, that the family is constantly changing. Who defines what marriage is? Well, a couple of years ago, our country came together, Defense of Marriage Act, and we passed that, and everybody got together. Large majority of our country said, this is what defines a marriage, a man and a woman. It doesn't matter if all of us agree that that's what defines a marriage, we're actually just supporting what God has already defined. A man and a woman define a marriage. The same thing with a family. God has defined it. We can't redefine it. But that's what culture 
is trying to do. And it's the same question. Did God really say this? Did God really say that? When you think about it, what in our culture is under attack trying to be redefined? And I want to maybe give this to an open forum. What are some things you can think of that culture's trying to redefine that God has already defined? Hands? Marriage, great. What's another? Sexuality. Sexuality. What else? There's a lot of them, guys. Yes. Another Jesus. Great. Okay, other Gospels. What's some other things? Church. Church, trying to redefine church. That's right. What's sinful? What is sin? What's not sin? Is that really what God said? Good. What are some other things they're trying to redefine? Okay, relationships outside of marriage. Great. Was there one more? Priorities. I mean, they're trying to redefine everything from what constitutes marriage to right, wrong, sexuality, how you parent, what is appropriate, how you should discipline your kids, the sanctity of life. God clearly says when life begins, trying to redefine it. Does life begin this many weeks into pregnancy? Does life begin after the child is out of the womb? Even though in our culture it still goes on to where there can be a partial birth but they still don't consider it born where we kill the child. Yet God has clearly defined what life is, trying to do that. Evolution, special creation, everything's trying to be redefined. And I would love to talk at length about all of those issues. And if you're struggling with one of those issues, even personally struggling with one of those issues, or you have questions, listen, I would love to talk with you after service because God has actually given these things for a reason and it's beneficial for us. But this morning... Our focus is on family, and we're going to look at some passages that focus on what the family actually is. But I have a question for us before we get into the family, because I want us to see what culture actually says about our family, about our role. And so one phrase that I'm sure many of you know, you guys can fill in the blank for this, it's this. It takes a village to what? Raise a child. So that summarizes kind of what our culture thinks about us as parents. It takes a village to raise a child. Hillary Clinton wrote this in her book a few years back. And no, it is not a biblical verse. Okay? A lot of people think that. It's not a biblical verse. It's an African proverb that she wrote in her book. And it's repeated often. It takes a village to raise a child. And I want to hit on this because in her book, this is one thing she says about it. Parents bear the first primary responsibility for their sons and daughters. That sounds like a great statement. We would agree with that biblically, right? And it sounds pretty good, I would say, as all politicians do, until they go on and actually explain what they meant by their previous statements. Because they're not what they seem. She goes in the rest of her book and says, this term village extends not just to parents, which we biblically agree, We're not just to grandparents, which we biblically agree with, but into government-ran agencies, government projects, social institutions, the educational system, and other governmental systems that she advocates. So now all of a sudden, village went from primary responsibility for the parents to now everybody almost but the parents in this statement. So think of actually what's being said, grandparents, parents, and future parents, that you are incapable of raising your own children. You're unequipped. You have to outsource these responsibilities. That's not what the Bible says about any of these things. 
And I want to encourage us this morning, in a culture where we're living that's trying to redefine everything God has already defined, that we should be encouraged because it's the same problems we've always had. Same problems, same solutions. God has equipped us, and that's what we're going to be digging into. He's equipped us with two main institutions. Two main institutions. The first one is the church family. The church family. This is our spiritual family. Look around. Those of you who are in Jesus Christ, you're stuck with them. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? So, if, if you're in Jesus Christ this morning, you're part of the spiritual church family, your brothers and sisters for eternity. There are people who may be in your family who are not Christians. They're not in your spiritual eternal family. And so, above the physical family is the spiritual family. There are people in my family, my brothers and, and some grandparents and things like that who are outside of the faith. We pray, we want them to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But until they do, they're just my physical family. My eternal family, my brothers and sisters in Christ are people I'm going to be spending eternity with. Listen to how Jesus put it in Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. It says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brother stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Our spiritual family, listen, if somebody's talking about somebody in my church, somebody's talking about somebody here, they're talking about my brother. They're talking about my sister. They're talking about my mom or my dad. That's the way our church family should be. And, and so this is one institution that as we've been working through Ephesians, the church has been given to us to equip us so we can go do the works of ministry in the community, but also in your family. A second institution is the family. The family. So we've already seen this defined as a husband, a wife, and a child or children. And scripture often compares the church family and your physical family back and forth. In fact, when you're supposed to be or when you're looking for like deacons in the church or elders in the church, pastors in the church, it actually says in 1 Timothy to look at men and see if they manage their own household well, if they have dignity, keeping their children submissive. And then it says this, if someone doesn't know how to manage their own household well, how can they possibly manage the church well? And then deacons, it says, let deacons be the husband of one wife managing their children and their household well. And so scripture is comparing back and forth all the time the church family and your physical family and how pastors are leading the church and managing that. Parents are leading the family, managing that. All through Ephesians, as Christ loved the church, husbands are to love their wives. As you submit to the Lord, so you should submit to this. And it goes back and forth, back and forth, comparing the family and the church family. You can tell a lot about a man, a lot about a wife, a lot about a family by how their family functions, spiritually speaking. This is why the Puritans called the family little church. That's what the Puritans called the family unit. They just called it little church. And so this leads me to an important point this morning. I want us all to begin seeing our families, even if your grandparents is just the two of you, Begin to see your family as a little church. And that's a main point this morning. Begin to view your family as a little church. Now, we've already seen how this is biblical. 
but a very practical and helpful reason to see our families as little churches is this. We all know what we want in a church, right? I mean, you come to families and you're like, I don't know if I should model my family after my family or my spouse's, how she grew up, or Terry's family or some other family. You know, it looks like they have it going pretty well, but there's some issues there or there's some issues there. I mean, who do I model my family after? Well, if you begin to see your family as a church, a little church, there's a lot of things that all of a sudden you're expecting. I mean, you come to a church, what if they don't have worship ever? Right? What if, what if you come to a church and they never really do good teaching? I mean, what do you do? You, you probably leave that church, right? I mean, when we're, when we're looking for a church, as soon as we pull in, we're, we're looking at like the building, how friendly people are when they come to us, they greet us, what we're singing about, is the teaching good, how's the prayer time, how's the outreach, what do they give to? I mean, we're analyzing all these things in big church, but scripture talks about our little church should be very much the same. So I want us to go through eight, eight things that we look for in big church that should be present in little church. Because this is something tangible. It's not just a concept. This is actually some things we can implement in our family because we've experienced them in big church every Sunday. We know what we're looking for, and we can transition that, implement that. So our little church should be a microcosm of what happens at big church. So eight things. And I want to tie in how pastors in the church, they're commanded through Scripture to be a wise manager of the church. So likewise, you as parents are commanded to be wise managers of your home. As pastors are called to protect the flock, you're called to protect your family. As pastors are called to teach well, you as parents are called to teach well. As pastors are called to refute false teaching in the big church, you as parents are called to refute false teaching in your little church. I mean, there's a lot of symbolic things that Terry and I are responsible here for, but we're also responsible for in our little church. And the same with you. Now, grandparents, singles, and teenagers, teenagers, children, you're going to have families one day, okay? You need to be learning how to actually do these things now. I was never taught, most everybody in here that I've talked with was never taught actually how to parent. They just became a parent, and they're like, we need to figure this out, okay? But scripturally speaking, we should be teaching how to parent all the time. And we should be teaching it this morning. So don't just tune out. Actually be learning so you can implement these things. Singles, grandparents, just because you don't have children in the home doesn't mean you're exempt. You still have neighbors with children in the home. You can still be an influence. You have grandchildren, possibly. We're all in this together. So we're going to look at eight areas. We're going to run through these pretty quick. Number one, little church is not an event. It's a continual way of life. This is an event. We come Sunday morning. We have small groups and other things that you can go to. But your little church is a continual way of life. A passage for us to look through with this is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 and 8. Listen to this passage. It says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And then it says to parents, you shall teach them diligently, diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit down 
in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. It's trying to say whatever you're doing continually, a continual lifestyle of teaching this in the home, teaching scripture, teaching biblical principles in the home. And then it says you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. Almost like in elementary school, you got a little ribbon on your hand when you need to be reminded of something. Or it even says, as a frontlet between your eyes. Something that's right here, it's a continual way of life. I'm leading my family continually, it's not an event. Secondly, little church, your family should be a place of prayer. Should be a place of prayer. It's been said, a family without prayer is like a house without a roof, open and exposed to all the storms of life. Now, this doesn't have to be long, drawn-out prayers all throughout the day. They can be simple prayers. Listen, your kids and your spouse knows if you're being authentic in your prayers. All right? So better to be a short, authentic prayer that you're praying earnestly rather than trying to pray some fancy big prayer theologically that you really have no heart behind. But it should be a time of prayer. One thing we've done here often is use the acronym of ACTS, A-C-T-S. And you can even implement this, make it real practical. On Mondays in our family, we're going to pray through A, adoration. So when we get together and we pray as a family, we're going to pray and we're going to praise God through adoration. Maybe it's just at night when you put the kids down, we're praying adoration today, praising God for who he is. Tuesday, maybe you're praying confession Listen, if you're able to confess some things, how you failed as a parent to your children, it teaches them that it's okay because we're all broken, we're all weak, we're all in need of God's grace because even dad messes up. Even dad misspoke to mom or even mom lost it. Confession. Wednesday could be Thanksgiving and then Thursday, supplication. Number three, little church experiences different forms of worship. Just as we have in big church worship with song, we should have it in little church. Ephesians chapter 5 says that we should be addressing one another with psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. So how can this be done practically in the home? Well, get a hymnal, get a CD player, get an iPod, get a computer. There's YouTube videos, there's tons of worship songs that you and your family can select that have the lyrics right on the video and you guys can sing together as a family. And I know that sounds really weird, okay? If you're honest, for me, that would have been really weird in my family. I remember the first time when Amanda said, hey, we should start praying together every night in our marriage. And I'm like, that is weird. You know, I wish that that wasn't weird. I wish that that was normal, but growing up, it just wasn't for me. And so now we pray together every night. But those are things that I want to have in my family of a place of prayer, a place of worship. You can learn an instrument. This is one reason why I went and bought a ukulele so I can, yes, a ukulele, not a guitar. I bought a ukulele so I can actually play and lead my family in worship. And so that's one thing you can do. Another form of worship is volunteering, teaching your family how to volunteer at church, using your talents, out in the community. Financial stewardship. Who's teaching your children and your teenagers how to actually manage their money? Because the world will do it. And it's not good, right? 
because they're going to be getting credit card offers and all these different ways. You have to be doing this. Listen, don't wait until they go get a job and then try to teach them how to tithe on their job. Okay, you have to be teaching them when they're little and they get a dollar. 10% goes here, 10% goes into savings, maybe 20% goes into this thing you're saving for, and the rest you can spend. If they learn to do that with a dollar, it's a lot easier to transition to where maybe they're in high school, they get a part-time job, now they're making 200-something dollars a week. Now all of a sudden, 10% giving is a lot harder than 10 cents, right? Well, you have to begin training these things so little church should be experiencing different forms of worship. Number four, little church places value on the word of God. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Don't worry, I'm going to give you time to turn there. So here's some pages turning. 2 Timothy chapter 1. They always give me a hard time because I rush through things. So, 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, says this. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So it went from the grandmother to the mother and now to the child. And so generation to generation to the next generation, they had a high value on the word of God. In 2 Timothy, just turn a couple of pages over to chapter 3, in verse 15 it says this. Verse 15, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've seen that there's actual teaching going on, value the Word of God. This is what we should be doing in our families, valuing the Word of God. So some examples of this, which leads us to number five, little church is consistent. Little church is consistent. Just in big church, we have teaching time. At 8.45, we have core class, which is a Bible study. And then at 10 o'clock, there's the sermon and worship. Well, in your home, 10 minutes after dinner, you can get together and you can read together the Bible as a family. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be a 45-minute service that the family dreads to go to. It can be 10 minutes following dinner where you read some passages and you discuss some things. And I would encourage all of you, we have a Bible reading plan at our church that we're encouraging all of us to read through. So you can, there's basically four chapters a day. You have your family reading that you can Read after dinner, two chapters, discuss it as a family for a couple of minutes, but there's also two chapters that's your private reading. Maybe you get up in the morning, you read your two chapters, you go to work, come home, have dinner, and then you have two chapters to read, and it's throughout the whole year, already all planned out for you. And so that's something you can do. Consistency reveals importance. If you consistently say, every evening after dinner, we're going to have our quiet time, our Bible time, our devotional time. Maybe you pray before you go to bed, but this is the time where you're reading God's Word. Your family's going to see we place a high value on the Word of God. We place a high value on the Word of God. Let's say that you're going to somebody's house or somebody's coming over for dinner. Reschedule. Reschedule if you can't make that. 
And we're very guilty of this because sometimes we'll have company come in town and we're like, well, we'll just get to it next week. That's something we have to work on. I'm sure we all have to work on is make sure we reschedule because it shows value and importance. Number six, the attributes of God are exhibited in your little church. So, for example, biblical love is demonstrated between husband and wife. Biblical love is demonstrated between your children. Respect, forgiveness, joy, humility. I mean, as parents, we don't always discipline the right way. Sometimes we discipline out of anger. Well, it's very meaningful. I see some kids shaking, <laughs> shaking their heads. That's right, they do. Well, sometimes as parents, if we discipline the wrong way, maybe we did it out of anger and not out of love for the purpose of restoration. Maybe we need to go back and we need to apologize to our child and say, you know, dad was wrong in how I did that. Will you forgive me? That's a big thing. Showing them you're, you're broken too and you need their forgiveness. You begin showing that they begin to see the importance of that as well. And so the attributes of God should be clearly shown in the home. Even mistakes, we have an opportunity to redeem for God's glory. Doesn't Listen, we're going to mess up big time as parents. But in all of our mistakes, we're able to redeem those things for God's glory as well. Number seven, little church cultivates spiritual conversations. Little church cultivates spiritual conversations conversations. This is discussions how the scriptures actually apply to something they're going on in school or something that they heard or something on the news, something going on maybe from history. George Barna wrote a book called Revolutionary Parenting, Raising Your Kids to Become Spiritual Champions. Spiritual champion is a child who grew up in the faith and they went off to college and are still in the faith, strong believers. And listen to what it says to the research and the pollings that they did. The parents of spiritual champions aimed for at least 90 to 120 minutes a day of direct verbal interaction with their children, expanding beyond the 15-minute typical in most families. So 15 minutes is the typical verbal communication between parents and children, typically in most families. It says these parents were their child statistically grew up and stayed in the faith, strong for the faith, they had, the parents were shooting for 90 to 120 minutes a day to do these things. So here's a practical tip, because this could be hard to implement. You ask a kid, hey, how was school? Fine. What'd you do? Same old, same old. You know, so how can we cultivate some spiritual conversations? Well, one thing that you could easily do is, if there's others in your life or that you know at church who are spiritually strong, Invite them over. Invite them over to your home. Have a dinner over with them or other friends, people who are godly influences. Invite them over because they can help stir on good conversations. Maybe they can present something that you haven't been able to present. Maybe they can present the gospel in a way that you haven't. There's a different voice, another voice in their life. Listen, that's not the job of what's going on in children's ministry to connect them with other godly people. That's your job as a parent. The same with your teenager. It's not, uh, it's not church youth group. You take that responsibility. And regardless of the, if the church youth group is connecting them with good godly adults, I'm going to take that responsibility as a parent and connect my child with good godly adults. 
And this is one thing where we've outsourced so much to the culture. I, I've given my child to this system and this system, and I've given them to the church system to where it's all of a sudden we don't have any responsibilities that we're doing except maybe providing financially. For example, when you bring your kids or, or teenagers to church, we should be influencing and encouraging what they've already been learning at home. This should be supplemental to what they're already getting. Not the whole thing, the direct thing. If this is the only thing they're getting, we're only meeting an hour a week with them. This should be extra bonus for that. So we need to be bringing in good conversations, good godly individuals, good material into our home. And right along with that, number eight, parents guard what is brought into little church. We have to guard what is brought into little church. Just as Pastor Terry and I, we guard what's brought into here. Just like Luke doesn't allow just any Christian song to be sung here. I mean, we guard what's brought into here. We don't allow just any curriculum to be taught at this church because it has Christian stamped on it. Just the same, you as parents have to guard what's brought into your home. What type of music? Listen, I had loving Christian parents, but I remember there was times when I was left at home and I had any movie in the home that I wanted to watch. And there were some things inappropriate in those movies. And so what do I have access to? What do your children have access to? On their phones, on the internet, on the cable, do you know? We have to guard what we allow in the home. Interesting article here regarding electronics. Recently reading in the New York Times that a common characteristic of every mega technology executive, so a parent such as Steve Jobs or people like that, executives in these big technology companies, they were interviewed and polled about their parenting, and they all had one thing in common. All of them limited the amount of tech in the home. I mean, you would think Steve Jobs' kids were running around with iPads and, and iPads, but they had never even used them whenever he was interviewed. And so they went on to say the number one rule in every single one of these executives' homes is that there are no screens in the bedroom, period, ever. Ever. Could be in the living room, could be in the kitchen, no screen. Some of the kids are like, don't listen right now, don't listen. <laughs> but this was something to where all these executives said the same thing. No screens in the bedroom, period, ever. And these are the people who sell these things to you and your children, and they understand the dangers of them to where they limit their kids to sometimes zero to 15 to 30 minutes a day, unless it's school-oriented, and some time on the weekends, but there was limits to how much time. And then they said, in the bedroom, no screens at all. The New York Times article went on to say this about Steve Jobs. Every evening, this is not a believer that we're talking about, Steve Jobs made a point of having dinner at the big long table in their kitchen, discussing books and history and a variety of things, no one ever pulled out an iPad or a computer. The kids did not seem addicted at all to devices. How are we doing in this, parents? I know sometimes my wife and I, we sit down for dinner, and 
we jump on to show somebody something we read and before long we're on Facebook or doing something before our responsibilities in the home are done. We have to watch how much we do this as well as our children. We have to guard ourselves and what's brought into the home. The church is here to help equip us as parents and families to administer the word of God. But you as parents, grandparents, singles, individuals, teenagers, all of these things, you've been given to work in these things as well. And we have to take these things serious. I want to transition to two real life stories that I hope hit home for some of us here. One is from a middle school student from our church, and one is from a college-age student from our church. And I won't be sharing any names, but recently, college-age student went off to college. They were really excited about going to a biblical class at college. They went to an Old Testament class, excited about Old Testament. The professor ended up being a Jewish man who knew the Old Testament scriptures, but, of course, didn't believe in Christ. So all the Old Testament was just history. It didn't actually point to the Savior, Jesus Christ. So, of course, the student was disappointed in that, thinking maybe the next semester they'll sign up for New Testament class. So they signed up for New Testament class, excited about this class growing in their faith. Well, the first day they go into New Testament class, the professor gave a true-false quiz. And one of the questions in this true-false quiz, just to assess their knowledge, was... Jesus Christ was an historical figure. Of course, everybody checks true. Professor comes back and says false. Jesus Christ was not an historical figure. And then goes on to say, if you have a problem with that, or you're a Christian, you're probably not going to like this class, and I would advise you to leave. I advise you to drop the class. This is what is going on often. Example of this in... The middle school student is in science class, gave the example of a woman was going to die. She had organs that were failing, and the kids were asked if aborting a child and using the stem cells from the abortion could save her life, would the children accept that? Would the children do that? So the, the kids who are in middle school are questioning now their basis for everything in what they would allow to do, life or this life, and this teacher is the one posing these questions. So a lot of the students said, no, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't allow that. Um, professor went on, or teacher went on to ask, well, what if this was the richest person in the world using their money for good things? Almost like valuing this more than a child's life. And this student said, if that's God's will that that person died then I think that that's what should happen rather than kill a child. And so the teacher said, so you're a Christian, huh? Well, let's make it more personal. What if it was your child? What if it was you? You know, so there's this questioning back and forth of, now all of a sudden it's not a science class, it's, a, it's an ethics class. It's a morals class. And these are the type of conversations, I'm telling you these things, because these are the type of conversations that if you're not having with your children in the family, they're still happening, right? There's still discussions around tables. Maybe it's not your dinner table. Maybe it's a lunchroom table, or maybe it's a table in the classroom about what really is right. Is there such a thing as right? 
Is there such thing as moral absolutes? Is sin really bad? Did God really say these things are happening? And if you're not talking with them about it, discussing with them about it, I can promise you they're being discussed. So this is why it's important we view our families as little church because it puts some tangible things that we expect in big church that we need to be having in our little church as well. As you already heard, we'll be starting a parenting class called Ready to Launch Wednesday evenings, October 8th for seven weeks, where we're going to be working through a lot of these things and how we can actually begin to take back over some areas in our own families. And so grandparents, teens, individuals, married couples, parents, everybody, we want you to come so we can work through these things together as a church. So I, I want to encourage all of you. Scripture has answers to all of these things. We must get practical. We must get serious about our families. God has entrusted you as grandparents, as parents, with so, so much. We have to make sure that we're good stewards. And I want to encourage you, regardless of if your kids are already out of the house, it's not too late to begin implementing these things right now. You have an effect as a grandparent. You have an effect as parents. And you have an effect as individuals. We're faithful and we leave the results to God how he wants to do this work in the lives of our children and in the lives of us. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we give you praise for who you are. God, I know that we've went through a lot of things, a lot of practical things with what it means to be a family. We know our culture is consistently asking the question and pushing against the things you've already defined, trying to redefine everything. But God, you've already defined these things. Help us in our homes to function like little churches. God, I, I know that I've listed out so many things that we're still trying to implement. But God, we have to have a standard. We have to have something that we pursue. So God, help us to implement these things in our home. Help our homes to be a place of worship, to be a place of prayer, to be a place that cultivates spiritual conversations that we're guarding what is there I pray for conversations that happen even today between parents and children and how these things can work together in a beneficial way. God, help all of us to love as you have loved and to give grace as you've given us grace. God, we thank you that we're able to worship you this morning in spirit and in truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.